it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you get to listen in on compelling conversations with authors about their latest work and what's behind it. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back. Season 3, Episode 6, Anna Q. We discuss her debut memoir, Made in China, which was published in August 2021 by Catapult. From the book jacket, quote, A young girl forced to work in a queen's sweatshop calls child services on her mother in this powerful debut memoir about labor and self-worth that traces a Chinese immigrant's journey to an American future. Why do you write? Um, I write because growing up there wasn't any space for my narrative. Um, and that includes books, which was my escape for the longest time. And, um, and then I think as an adult, um, <clears throat> when I really got into, um, I graduated with my MFA with um, a collection and I ended up working on one of those pieces until it <clears throat> became made in China. And, and that work was a different type of work. I would say, you know, the way you imagine writing a book um, when you're younger is so different from the actual <laughs> writing of a book, which takes so much more discipline, time, and just facing yourself over and over again. <clears throat> so I would say that it really changed for me. <clears throat> when I started writing the book, um, you know, it was to be heard, to be understood, to find a space for myself on the page, since I really hadn't found it um, in other books or around me. Um, but the the more I dove into memoir and the more I understood what it meant to tell a story and what it meant to work with um, trauma and um, wanting to come out the other side with something just maybe more than all of the separate parts combined, mm -hmm. right? So I didn't want this, like five years in, I, I, I recognized that, okay, well, I'm no, I've gotten all of the anger out of, uh, out of, out of my childhood. Um, I've written through all of the pain. What is it that I want the reader to walk away with? Why am I telling this story? I think that's one of the reasons that um, the book took so much longer. It took, um, I would say it took seven or eight years in total. Um, and the whole process is around, it took me about 10 years um, just because publishing moves so slowly. But um, 
you know, it's the later years where I was really, um, and I think that's something every writer sort of have to face at some point, you know, how am I adding to all of these brilliant books I've read all of my lives, mm. uh, all of my life, and how am I going to, um, and what do I want to say, and how am I going to leave like my book in the world in that way. Um, Cause it is something that's going to be hopefully knock on wood, um, something that, you know, um, isn't just as timely piece um, here for the next couple of months. I, I, I do hope that it is a memoir that people will continue to read. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you mentioned that you had gotten all of the anger out of your childhood. Well, and yeah. Maybe not all of it, but <laughs> enough to write about. Yeah. yeah. There's I'm, a caveat around that. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. talk about that because I, I, I'm writing a, a memoir too. And it's like three or four years in and I haven't touched the material for a while because it's difficult material. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious. I did read in, in your acknowledgments in the book that you you know, writing about that heavy stuff was um, possible with your writing community and things like that. But what did that kind of look like? Because I'm kind of stuck. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a really tough process. Like I went through an MFA program that was predominantly white. Um, and, pro and white isn't so much the issue as like the narratives everyone is telling and, and then feeling like my narrative is I don't know. I don't know if there's a worse or not, but you know there is certain labels like abuse um, that uh, makes it hard to read, and also makes it really hard to workshop along with other people. Um, so I had a, and I think all of my life experiences. You know, it's not just the book that I'm I'm coming up with. It's my life, and so most of my life I have. Um, out of necessity reached out to people around me for help, adults or even, um, you know, classmates and friends. And, um, you know, people don't want to know. Um, I think with knowing comes responsibility to act. And um, that really struck me, you know, when I was in college, one of my best friends at the time, because I was going through a lot and some of that is in the book, but just like, just trying to figure out how I was going to pay for college and like mm -hmm. what to do during the breaks when I had no way to go. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was such, so fresh in my mind, you know, I just left home and I was just panicked. And so I was talking to a friend that I'd known most of my life who was of Chinese descent. And, and she basically was like, I, um, don't really, um, I know you're going through a really hard time, but I really want to live my life and I want to enjoy my time in college. Mm -hmm. And that was so painful for me. And I, mm -hmm. I, it was valid. It's valid, right? She does deserve to live her life. And I don't want to be that burden for her, but I really internalized that at, you know, <laughs> at, um, 19, 20, um, at that point, and just realizing that, hey, if my best friend or the person that I consider my best friend 
can't handle the burden of my story. How, what do I do with this content? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I spent maybe a decade after that trying to pretend it wasn't there, that it Mm. didn't happen. And of course, it's not something that you can run away from. The the single person you cannot run away from in your life is yourself. Uh And, you know, it just follows you wherever you go. And ultimately, um, when I sat down to to write this book, I would say I spent most of it um, just working on it, working on it and not sharing it with anyone. I didn't trust anyone with it. Uh, I didn't want any feedback. I didn't want other people's, um, you know, um, opinions to to change the way I was writing this book. And I was mostly writing this book for myself at, at, at a point. Right. Um, so the, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I probably got away from, from the question, but um, it's... Yeah. A, a very long process. And I think one of the, the, the biggest thing for me was really checking in with myself and figuring out what was going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and also going through and, and trying to do the things that were most obvious first. Mm-hmm. And when they didn't work, trying the next thing. Mm -hmm. I think writing a memoir is so such uncharted territory like I think in a lot of ways the structure of this book is so inherently its own Um, and that's because I just took a long time and eventually it revealed itself to me like I found it from trying so many other ways that didn't work and eventually it did work right Mm -hmm. um and I I read so much trying to figure out okay well let me see if other writers have figured out something about structure that I, I, I don't see or don't understand. And I, and I never really found it. You know, people, people often ask, you know, what were you, who are you trying to model this book um, after? And that was a really hard question for me because mm. I really didn't want to, um, especially after uh, my childhood, I wanted something that was, uniquely my own yeah um and you know it's society whether it um and the people around us whether they mean to or not you know often make us feel othered right and um I felt othered most of my life um Mm -hmm. to a point where I'm very you know some I'm like a, a a switch sometimes I'm either you know fully there and fully vulnerable, or if I shut down, then I'm just completely gone, right? right. And that's how to survive lots of the trauma that I've gone through. Right. And in writing this book, like, uh, it felt like it had to be a protective space. Mm. So I allowed myself that vulnerability within the book. But, you know, um, besides my agent and editor, I don't think anybody really saw even close to a finished version of this Mm. um and that was partly because I was very protective of it yeah when I when I was doing the bulk of the first draft writing I was the opposite I was showing my family members my friends my partner like I think I wanted 
some 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 validation out the gate or something yes yeah. um but yeah now that you know it's been in process for a couple of years i think i'm once i continue writing and it's coming soon but i think it might be more of that sheltered experience yeah yeah, yeah. um and I, I think one of the things that um is really hard is to spend so much time by yourself working on a project without showing it to other people. Yeah. Um, and I've found like you have to have other ways to counter some of that, right? So still having a community and talking about the process, but maybe not allowing other people to provide feedback on the content yet, mm -hmm. or um, working on other pieces that maybe are not so close to your heart mm -hmm. that you can publish, right? So even when I was, I mean, I worked on this book for so long, um, but I would take breaks from it and I would um, publish other uh, essays because I felt like I needed that sort of validation from the community. Mm -hmm. I needed immediate gratification, you know? Yeah. Um, when a book takes eight years to write, there's, like you have to sustain yourself somehow. And I think a lot of play needs to come into that too, right? Mm. Like play in both what you're reading, but experimenting with your work and taking care of yourself. Self-care, I think, is such a huge part of um, writing the memoir that is just not taught or talked about enough. Um, you know, so much of it is psychological. Um, I, I, I teach mostly nonfiction, but I also teach fiction on, on occasions. And, you know, there's that something like the idea of writer's block is very different for someone who's writing fiction or writing nonfiction. For me, almost immediately, if it's nonfiction, I, um, my immediate thought is like, okay, what kind of, um, mental obstacle or heart obstacle is happening here? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and just trying to understand what's stopping the flow. Um, and for me, I had writer's block for a very long time and it ended up, um, it's so funny. My therapist talks about it all the time, how I walked into her office and was like, I, I'm over my childhood, but I have a block and I need your help to get past the writer's block. <laughs> Which just tells you like how black and white I was at the time, you know? Yeah. But, but, and I've come so far from that because I really think everything has to do with everything else. You know, we can't just, it, it's so hard to compartmentalize. It's just impossible to do. So if you have a mental block and you're trying to work on your memoir, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. So you're talking about self-care. What did that look like for you besides therapy um, I did a lot. Um, so when I was in grad school, I, um, I went, um, so I went to Sarah Lawrence and, um, I was so happy. I mean, I quit my job, which probably I didn't need to, but I wanted to, I quit my job, moved up to Bronxville and was like, every day I would sit down and for like five hours a day, I was trying to write. And almost immediately, like two weeks in, I like was tearing my hair out and like crying and emotional and just like, it's just too traumatic. Yeah. 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 You can't, you can't bulldoze your way through. That's, that just doesn't work. And uh, <laughs> I tried really like, hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely gave that a, a real try. Um, and I ended up um, taking up 
art classes. I started painting. Mm. Yeah. I started oil painting and I, Sarah Lawrence has like one of the best um, art programs. So it was amazing. Mm. I mean, I loved it so much. Um, And that just gave the same part of my creative brain. Um, But there was just so much more freedom in painting because I, it didn't matter to me the way the memoir did. You know, every time I sat down to write on the memoir, there was just so much at stake for me. Mm-hmm. And it was just so serious that I think it just blocked me. Mm-hmm. So I needed something else creative that was going to allow that sort of flow to happen. Um, and on and off, that's that's like, I still have a relationship with, um, I paint less now, but I, sometimes I'll, I'll take, um, sketch classes, um, at the art student league of, of New York or the student league. I I always get that wrong, but there's a, there's a great, you know, um, art league, arts league, um, in, in, in the city that's been around for a very, very long time. And they do really reasonable, like classes with live figures and stuff. So Mm. I try to do that once in a while. But in addition to that, I also, um, I, for me also traveling has always been something that helps. Mm. Um, and I, I physically mean like traveling, like there's something about the momentum of being on the train Mm -hmm. forward. Like I've definitely taken like, you know, if I can't do a residency or writing retreat, um, I will like, there's been a couple of times where I just take the Long Island Railroad all the way out to Montauk Mm -hmm. um, and just write. And sometimes it's even to journal, but to work, to journal, Mm -hmm. to have time with myself, to, to allow that time to like self-care for me. Cause I'm, I'm someone that like um, regenerates by themselves. Like I don't, and that's partly my sense of like safety. Like I feel most safe and most relaxed in a room, but with no one but myself, maybe my cat. (laughs) Same. I'm the same. And I I think, I mean, I I would attribute a lot of that to my own, Mm -hmm. you know, way to cope with trauma growing up and protect myself was to isolate. And and now it's like that safe space. And I'm the same with travel. If I could sit on the train for hours, Mm -hmm. the original impetus behind my draft coming out was my first trip abroad and I got home and I started excuse me I just started writing and then you know the story started you know I tried to bulldoze my way through it I got as much of it out as I could but yeah those things that that get get the story going and moving um but the painting and whatnot was that your first time doing anything like that yeah, it really was. I think I had a, a connection to like, I'm, I've always been very visual and I've always been interested in art, but it wasn't something that I was allowed to do when I was a, ch- was a child. Like, you know, Chinese upbringing, very firm and strict and certain things is, you know, it's very black and white. Certain things are accepted and certain things aren't, right? So for some reason, like music and, and um, art wasn't really a, a focus um, obviously, um, education and morals and duty and filial piety was were were all the things I w- was taught. But um, yeah, I, I found I found art much later. Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's. I mean, you mentioned your Chinese upbringing. Let's let's talk about the book. So, yeah. 
Made in China, a memoir of love and labor. Can you kind of give us the, I don't know, the short of it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I think the book is really about of a pivotal moment in my life. And that moment is when my parents put me to work in their sweatshop as a teenager, as part of my punishment. Um, and, and I end up calling child services. Mm -hmm. Um, and the book is really trying to unravel and understand how that came about and why, and what happens after. And the second, or the, the, maybe the last third of the book really focuses on, um, there's, there's also a huge research element to this book. Um, and part of that research was finding the records and asking for the records. And when the records came, I was just really, really surprised that child services um, had ruled that there was nothing wrong in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was devastating on a completely other level. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that that was how they ruled. So I had spent, you know, from the time... It, uh, this happened when I was 15. So from this time, I was like 15 till 30s, over 20 years. Um, I thought that child services had saved me. Mm-hmm. That um, because they had sent a social worker and she had, you know, she didn't have a lot of time for us, but she made some really strong, um, very um, tangible changes in my life with my mother that that allowed me to stay there for another two years until I went off to college right after the social worker went to the house it seemed like uh there must have been almost some kind of very real threat to your parents or just she had said things that they needed to hear and it seemed like your mother's attitude and treatment kind of changed really quickly and dramatically. So as I'm reading, you know, and before you got the records, I'm thinking, okay, like what you said that they came and they, they did something and it saved you and it changed the dynamic, but to get the records back and find out Mm -hmm. no no abuse, no, (laughs) I mean, that must've been devastating. Yeah. Talk about erasure, you know, like just building back on the friend and that conversation and just feeling like, um, you know, whoever I told just never knew how to receive any of that information to begin with. Hmm. Um, So much so that I just was like, I'm just going to let it go and just try to move on with my life. Um, So I think in a lot of ways it had been, it was under the surface um, and it, you know, it really does affect so much more than you think it does. Like I think about my personality, right? Even um, how extroverted I I seem. Um, And I think some of that is just survival, needing to fit in, wanting to fit in. Um, I think about, you know, um, how loud and sort of performative my personality was in my 20s and how much of that came from the insecurities that I had growing up um, and the childhood I I had and you know it's still difficult for me to be in a space with someone and like not attempt to fill the silence immediately you know Mm -hmm. I'm just such a pleaser Um, but it just yeah 
Yeah. So, I mean, and, and sometimes people ask me why um, the second half is focused on the startup and, um, and why I chose to write that section. And part of it is that I just really wanted um, readers to see the effects of trauma and how it never leaves you. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it, it is internalized and it continues to live in your even if you know you have a job, like it continues to live within your relationship with the people around you in that hierarchy. Yeah. Um, like my issues with authority right. and trust of certain systems, really of any systems at this point. Right. <laughs> but it's, you know, um, so yeah. Yeah. At first, you know, reading, you know, it just kind of went into the startup and I'm thinking, why is she doing this? But mm. it was really clear by the end of that you're showing like how we return to things that are familiar to us mm-hmm. even if they're damaging or harmful for me yeah relationships or mm-hmm. things that repeat the dynamic of the parent-child relationship and even work too i did the same thing for seven yeah. years not a startup but i was in i'm a public school teacher and i was in a school mm-hmm. that was not supportive that had no systems no structures mm-hmm. that was like it was a beat down every day going to mm-hmm. work I did it for mm-hmm. six years and I felt like oh God, yeah well exactly. I had yeah I have to be there I have to help these kids mm-hmm. to my own detriment um yeah. so that wasn't something I'd really thought about till I read that startup section yeah yeah and I I see it all the time and it's so yeah because like I don't know. There's this narrative that, you know, once we own our adulthood, once we, once we get out of our childhood and where we're away from our parents, we can move on and, and have our own lives. And, and, you know, there's that, that there's that break. And I, I just don't know if it's, I think that is an easy way to, you know, again, to change the conversation. Mm. Yeah. And it's something that, again, is not talked about enough um, because we want to we want to we want to think that we all just heal and move on from our trauma. And, you know, no, (laughs) No. that's an illusion for sure. And it will come back and bite you if you pretend that's the actual reality of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I and, and so that became. A part of the book that you know I think I was really hoping to resonate with the reader um in terms of like what's at stake in this book mm-hmm. and um why do we continue to tell these um very sad stories of our childhood um and why we need to continue to take up space to have these conversations yeah yeah so in your story, I mean, you were born in China. Mm-hmm. Mom left you there very young and came to America, got remarried, had two new children. Mm-hmm. And then how old were you when she, she got you over to the States? I was seven. Seven. Mm-hmm. 
And so you come over and it's, you know, the land of opportunity and freedom. And you're, yeah. you're probably thinking, yay, you know, it's yes. my turn. Here we go. And yeah. you get here. A, and, mo a mother, finally. Right. I've been like hearing about this mother figure for right. the last, my entire life. And just this connection with this, you know, woman that like, and then also like she was a success story. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I came from a very poor background. Like my grand, my grandparents are very poor and there's just like generations of poverty, which is very common during that time. And so, you know, this was like, my mother had succeeded and gone and made a life for herself in America and she was going to come back and get me. And mm -hmm. all of the, all of these things would change. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I came over and it was, just not that at all. I, I don't even think my mother really even gave me a chance to really have that connection between mother and child. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we ever created a bond because, you know, I didn't recognize her when I, when she came to get me. Um, the only thing that was familiar about her was her voice. And that was kind of crazy because she would call every two weeks um, on the phone. And I remember my grandmother, you know, not letting me go out and play because I would have to wait all day for my mom's phone call. Mm -hmm. But when she called, like, I didn't know what that meant. Like m the word mother didn't mean much to me. It was someone on the phone that asked me really annoying questions. Like, <laughs> are you listening to your grandma? Are you taking baths? Are you, you know, fighting with the boys in the neighborhood? You know, you're a girl. Like it very much sounded more like nagging than anything else. Mm -hmm. And then it would last for like, you know, five minutes max. And then I would get to go play. Hmm. And that was, you know, my experience of her until she came and got me. And then, you know, I was at her mercy. Right. Yeah. And you were not seen as part of this new family. And, yeah. and then <clears throat> I was curious about this and I understand you yeah. were young, but you went back to China at what age for that short amount of time? Oh, yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, th th when things got really tough at home um, and my mother was fighting, um, my mother and I were fighting a lot. Um, it got to a point where um, I was feeling very self-righteous because it was around doing homework. And I, you know, I had, um, it took me a, well, it felt like it took me a really long time to assimilate um, into elementary school. I started first grade when I should have gone to second and I didn't speak, you know, a word of English. I didn't know what was happening. And for the first four or five years, like I didn't pass a single English test and it was devastating to me. Um, and by, by, um, 14 and 15, I was finally on track, mm -hmm. you know, I was finally understanding and I was finally able to take tests and not fail them and understand what was being asked of me. Um, and I wanted to be good at it. Um, and I wanted to thrive because even at that age, I knew that I was never going to get the recognition I deserved at home and that I was never going to get the praise I de deserved no matter what I did at home. And so some of that went into my schoolwork and um, 
you know, the potential of like being accepted um, within the school system. Um, and, but just right around that time, because I was also a bit older, I was 13, 14, around 13, 14, 15, um, my mother stopped hiring help at home and I was expected to do all of the maid's work. And it was very, it was a lot of work. My mom, I think my mom's a little OCD for sure, but, um, (laughs) but like, but like she wouldn't, uh, I mean, it was just a huge laundry list of, from, you know, cleaning their bedrooms and making their beds to both my siblings bed beds to taking care of them to, you know, cleaning all of the dishes that were there to washing all of the clothes for the entire family doing, you know, bringing dry cleaning for my parents, washing my mother's like lacy underwear mm-hmm. because she, you know, it was too delicate, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything and, um, helping my mom cook, cleaning up, um, mopping the floor, vacuuming the, the, the upstairs, cleaning all of the bathrooms. Like it was just, a lot of work Mm -hmm. um and like she was very like I said she's like very OCD like she like I had to mop the floor the entire first floor on my hands and knees Mm -hmm. with a rag and a bucket and she would come home and she would she you know she would be like oh I see that that you you missed a line there you're gonna have to do it again and if you don't do it well you're gonna have to do it two more times Mm. and it would have been fine if I had unlimited time, but part of it was like I was trying to get done so that I could do some homework. Which you weren't allowed to do. Which I wasn't allowed <laughs> to do um, because I had all of these chores that I needed to do first. And then we had a very firm um, bedtime. So we mm-hmm. all had to be in bed by 10. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, she came, they came home at eight we had dinner and then I had to clean up. Mm-hmm. So by the time we were done, it was 10. So I had no time to do homework. And, you know, I would, you know, it was crazy. I would read while walking to school in between, you know, classes at lunchtime, like whenever I could, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it was hard. Um, English is my second language. And then at that point, I was like, trying to learn Spanish. And I was like, Oh, my God, I need to memorize these vocabulary words. Um, So it was like, not I I wasn't able to get away with it um, for very long. And so the anxiety and the pent up rage and trying to like figure this out. So one night, I decide to disobey my mother and I wait until everyone's asleep and so around like 10 30 i know they're still um up but i hear the tv in their bedroom but i like come down the stairs i sneak down the stairs and i turn on the living room light and i just start doing my homework in the um on the coffee table and and you know i i must have been there like 20 30 minutes and suddenly i feel like a tickle or something and i look down and I can see my my mom's like slippers and her robe mm-hmm. and her robe like rubbing against me and I'm like oh, shit. <laughs> you and so I start packing up because I don't know what to do and I start like put and she just follows me and she doesn't and she's like what are you doing and I don't answer and I like basically end up putting my 
So our books had a designated place mm-hmm. for bags. So like I take my book bag to where the designated spot is and then she's still following me. So I was like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. So I go into the kitchen and I'm like, I'm going to get a glass of water. And she's like, what are you doing? And I, there's no more, like there was nowhere for me to go. Right. The end of the line, I was in the kitchen and the fridge is like the furthest thing in this. So I'm like, <laughs> drinking this glass of water and she um and I turn around and she's like what are you doing and I I am just so frozen with fear that I say um I'm drinking water mm-hmm. and she immediately thinks I'm being smart with her mm-hmm. um um and she just smacks me and I you know at this point there's just a lot happening inside of me and I push her mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I see. You're all grown up now. Mm -hmm. I see how it is. And she slaps me again. And I like at that moment, I'm shaking and I don't know what to do. Like, Mm -hmm. do I do I dig my heels in or grovel and like, I don't know, cry. I don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I push her again. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) The, The silence was very deafening. And and she goes okay, let's see what your stepdad has to say about this, which was like a very strange um, threat at that time because mm-hmm. she was always the one that was disciplining disciplining me. Um, and then two days later, uh, they shipped me off to China to live with strangers. And, and sent me to a boarding school. Right. Yeah. And yet you desperately wanted to go back to their house. I'm I will, I'm curious about that. I'm thinking, oh my yeah. god, she finally gets to be free of this, you know, monstrous yeah. dynamic. Granted, you're with strangers, but I'm thinking, is she gonna find grandma? Is she gonna? Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, people ask why didn't your mom send you to your grandma, and I and I I say because this was supposed to be a punishment, right? Like, if she sent me to my grandma, my grandmother would spoil me rotten. Like my grandmother was like the only person that actually did love me mm-hmm. um, and showed it. Um, and so she um, she sent me to live with strangers. And yeah, it was a lot calmer because there was no one terrorizing me. Um, but it was just really impossible to catch up to school. I had not you know, um, studied, I had not gone to school in China and, and, you know, China's education system talk about like competitive after sixth grade, like it's only mandatory until sixth grade. So I was being put into, I think eighth grade and, um, it was so competitive, mm. so competitive. And I couldn't understand the questions, Never mind figure out how to write the responses. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't read, I couldn't read any of the information. So it was like, I, w- I was going to fail every single class. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, okay. I also, you know, it was just, um, it was such an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. I, um, and even then at 15, it's really fascinating. At that point, I was like, I'm an American. And I was, you know, through assimilation, I and the fact that, you know, I was living this American dream, or at least um, from the, the exterior, right? Mm-hmm. It's that way. And 
it was really interesting to see even at that age the kids being like oh america like i don't think you should be that proud of america your president like does all these things and i was like what was right <laughs> yeah so yeah so like yeah there was it was a very interesting but it was also really hard right like the out there were the you know there was um you know, you brush your teeth outside, you had basins to like wash your hands and feet, like you didn't shower regularly. Um, we were living in dorms and it was a, you know, it, it's communist China. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you get kicked out for making out with a boy. Yeah. I didn't even make out with him. <laughs> I kissed him on the cheek. <laughs> I don't know. And that's pretty risque. Yes. That's pretty risque. <laughs> So, um, yeah, they couldn't deal with how promiscuous I was. And they said, maybe this kind of behavior is accepted in America. Mm -hmm. um, and you should probably go back there. <laughs> and, and you wanted to. I really wanted to. And actually, that was, I mean. It, because, it, was it because of the, you wanted to go back to school where you could learn? Yes, it okay. was because of school, because of my friends. Okay. Um, I mean, it was everything. Like, I couldn't, I could not leave the house without getting lost. Yeah. I didn't know how to get anywhere. And it was like, take the bus somewhere. And, you know, it's just a very different culture. There's like usually a dozen people pushing their way into a bus. And then sometimes you don't make it, sometimes you do. There's no like, let me ask the driver if he can tell me when I get to this stop and then I'll get off. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't even get to the driver. I couldn't even, and nobody, like no one was nice when I asked questions. Yeah. Like it was just very intimidating. Yeah. Um, and so it was very, very isolating. And, and they put me with like an elderly couple that, you know, was would have been my grandparents age and they were retired and they were in sort of a, an old community. So there really wasn't much for me. Like I barely left their apartment. And when I did, it was like to go get ice cream and maybe um, eat some street food mm -hmm. and walk around in a circle because I was afraid of getting lost. Right. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really difficult. Like I just, there was no GPS, there was no phone. I really couldn't navigate Xi'an very well at all. Um, and it was also like a part of China I wasn't used to. It was incredibly dusty. I was also not used to the food. It's very mm. like, um, very carb heavy and, um, noodle heavy and I'm from a place where it's very rice heavy and so just dietarily it wasn't a great fit either and they let, like they have like very spicy food which I probably would love now but I, I grew up on a relatively light diet um, because of um, just where we are provincially from China mm -hmm. and so the food was very different the people were different um you know, they spoke Mandarin, but that was, again, that wasn't even my primary dialect. I'm Winsonese, so, right. so my primary dialect is Winsonese. And I only learned Mandarin because my stepfather is Taiwanese and Mandarin. Right. So, so yeah, yeah, it was, it was 
it was the mm-hmm. homeland, but it was as foreign as could be. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And um, yeah, I I couldn't even find familiar food. Right. Yeah. The only thing I could I could get access to was like ice cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yeah. It's not that that bad. Time. <laughs> yeah. And it was like super expensive. It was like three times what it was with like it was popsicle sticks, and that's right. what I lived on. Right. Um, and I learned to make myself eggs, and like I I didn't know how to cook, and so I would make eggs for myself. Like the the old the the old elderly couple ate very little and ate like I don't know just bread. I and like I was like oh my god I'm so constipated like I need <laughs> food and like. It was just, yeah, it was yeah. really hard on, yeah, my system, my palate. Um, I just, it was not a world I wanted to return to unwillingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also just standards of living, right. you know, like, like I was not good at bringing toilet paper with me wherever I went. Mm. And that was a requirement at that time Mm -hmm. and you know public bathrooms you had to pay and some of them didn't have stalls and it's just the fucking hole in the ground and you know being female like it is so nasty in the summertime Mm. you have all of yeah oh my god i still have nightmares like when i'm super anxious that's what i dream about Yeah. The fear of being in Xi'an and needing to use a public bathroom. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's very traumatizing. Okay. Um, That's making a lot more sense now why you wanted to go back. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. So how old are you now? I know that seems like a non sequitur, but I know. Late 90s? I mean, late 30s? 38. 38. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're, I'm, I'm, I'll be 37 next year. So similar mm-hmm. age. So yeah. kind of growing up in the same generation, but very different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had, I have a mother who is not the best emotionally, like not available, not very affectionate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our relationship yeah. has grown, but that, for me is the bulk of my wounding, right? Like Mm. this mother wound. Mm. But, and then it was like reading your dynamic with your mother. And I can't imagine, you know, the outright just awful abuse and the things that she would say and how you were, not part of the family and you were you know Mm -hmm. and they were very vocal about that how the fuck uh, you know and i'm not trying to (laughs) i don't know there's people deal with with abuse in different ways right but you Mm -hmm. seem very resilient very intelligent very successful very well adjusted and i know you talked about therapy I guess I don't know what my question is as much as like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on how, how different people respond? I almost wonder if it's cultural. A lot of it is cultural. Okay. A lot of it is cultural. It's cultural in ways that is like so antiquated 
I would be, I would say it's equivalent of like the 1930s when, um, you know, this country was going through, um, yeah, the last, the last, um, oh my God, my mind is blanking. Depression? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very similar to the mentality of the depression and just like the way they treat children in general, girls especially. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where I wasn't born so different from a lot of girls being drowned, given away because they're girls, because there's one child policy was still in place in China at that time um, in the 80s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mother is um, was starved a lot of her youth. Mm. Um, and that leaves a lot of trauma. Starvation is something that is just, you know, I don't think we can understand it. Mm -hmm. Just like we, it's it's really hard for us to understand war, right? What it feels like to, you know, feel the immediacy of like, let's say, okay, well, we're gonna go to, we're being shipped off to war tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Like it's just something that our generation doesn't understand, like hunger that makes you do stuff, right? Right, right. Hunger that makes you, um, that drives your ambition. Mm -hmm. And that's who my mother is. Right. Um, you know, she was going to claw her way out of wherever she was coming from in whatever form it took. And I was, a product of that path. Mm. I was an offspring at, you know, in, in her first attempt. And after that, I was a burden. And sure, she, I, I don't think that my mother doesn't love me, but I think that love is conditional for her in the sense that it's it's a, a privilege that she doesn't she didn't feel like she had right like the privilege to put me in front of her own welfare mm -hmm. um so i would say that in american culture we often um and and i would say china for the most part now would say you know you sacrifice for your children but she didn't really come from a generation like that. My grandmother right now still trying to convince me to have kids, not because I want kids, but so like kids can take care of me when I'm old. I'm right. like, okay, that's not why I'm going to have right, kids. Right. But that's like sort of what they're expecting from me. Like they just expect me to take whatever shit my mother has to give to me. And I just have to swallow it and smile and keep, cleaning up shit it almost and that is part of duty and filial piety and right. I'm like uh luckily I am in from a, an education and a class and a um I don't know luckily like I've had opportunities where I'm not dependent on my family and that is rare right among Chinese immigrants right. family ties are very close so I would say there you know if that social worker didn't come when she came into my life um and I didn't go to college the way that I fought to go to college I I'm not sure I would be able to write this book I don't know if I would have the privilege to have the distance that I currently have between me and my mother right 
Because right now I can be like, oh, no, I don't need your help, your money, anything from you. Right. Because the cost is just too high. Right. Um, and no one, and that's, that's rare. Right. Um, so, I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm very lucky. Like, I was really only with my mother from the age of seven to 17, that is really only 10 years of my life. But my goodness. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I, with the understanding that, you know, the specific yeah. flavor of abuse, for lack of a better term, was largely cultural. I also am curious, I don't know if I want to call it recovery or like your, your resiliency or ability to mm-hmm. cope with the past is cultural as well. Because when I think of, my mm-hmm. my background is like you know low income east coast kind of white trash kind of mm-hmm. um thing so in my family and in, in my previous communities what i see is like you know broken homes or mommy or daddy didn't love me or i was abused so i'm going to you know turn to drugs or alcohol or mm-hmm. whatever yeah. and end up dead or addicted mm-hmm. but you I mean doesn't seem like you went it, did, you, <clears throat> did you did you did you internalize I don't know if it's a very American thing granted you're American but to like internalize our parents behavior as I am worthless yes absolutely absolutely I struggle with that you know, a lot. And I I actually think it comes out in my relationship to um, writing. Like, I've never felt, I always had a hard time calling myself a writer. Um, And even now when people tell me they love my book, my first reaction is skepticism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that comes from self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I suffer from depression. Um, my highs are pretty high. My lows are all about self-worth and not feeling like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, like, and, and just, and just very quick too, very sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just talking to one of my students about, um, how, um, trauma creates, um, highly sensitive um, people and um, hypervigilance and like what that looks like. Um, but one one of one of it, it, it one of the it, the signs is just um, just like you know being super sensitive, mm-hmm. but also very in tune to wherever everyone else's emotional state is in a room when you're with other people mm-hmm. and trying your best to do that lift for everyone else as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, I think it's a self-worth is, is definitely a huge struggle for me. Mm. Yeah. Well, how do you kind of, you know, I, I, I have depression and anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. I probably get a, a bad low every year or so. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I take medication for it. I'm just curious, you know, how do you kind of 
what do the lows look like for you and how do you kind of treat that? Yeah, actually, um, when I was talking about like the conditional anger or how it comes out in the book, right? Um, I would say that as long as I am not actually in a conversation with my mother, I am fine. Mm -hmm. But once I'm actually talking to her, just, you know, so much comes up and it's so obvious that I'm still harboring so much anger and resentment and pain. Um, and so I think in some ways, many of us turn to the page to process, but also to be able to, um, to be able to have that um, sense of um, okayness with our own story. Right. I don't want to say, I hate the word forgiveness because I don't really necessarily think that that's a thing nor should we is that necessary for our mental health but I would say that that um that it is something that I as long as we're not in physical contact I am okay with and that is just where I am in my life I don't know how that's going to change but um one of the things that will drop me immediately is if I have a fight with someone in my family. Mm. So after this book came out, um, my grandmother, who is like the, basically my, my mother figure in my life, um, I called her and she was hysterically crying because she had been talking to my mother and she is in her eighties and she's, you know, my mother along with, her other siblings take care of her mm-hmm. and she feels um, very much at their mercy. You know, when we get old, we're once again, we're a child. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's been a really fascinating process just having my grandmother back in my life in my thirties, because I can see how she was and the matriarch she used to be and some of the cycles she's perpetuated, mm-hmm. right? Like suddenly I'm like, oh, I know why my mother is this way. Right. Now I see mm-hmm. you are just as manipulative <laughs> as my mother. You know, it just clearly, um, and I just think that we have a different connection. I think my, my, my grandmother and I do have that maternal connection. Mm-hmm. I just don't have it with my mother, but you know, damn, my family can be so cruel and just so blunt and just cold. And I I don't know if it's just because of the culture and just what they've lived through, but it's just obvious to me um, that my mother didn't become who she was from thin air. Right. Let's say, yeah. Um, If anything, I actually think part of it is that... um, you know, women too. There's um, my mother, I think was not my grandmother's favorite child growing up, but my grandmother and I've always had a very special relationship. Mm -hmm. And my mother has had lots of feelings about that. And she's been very, um, she's taking it out on my grandmother Mm. because I refuse to be anywhere near her. I will not take anything from her. So the only person she can sort of give that to is my grandmother. 
And so um, me writing this book and this book being published, the person that's getting the worst of it is my grandmother because mm. I don't really like, I will not communicate. I'm not open to that kind of relationship with my mother right now. If she's going to call and yell at me, I'm just going to like leave. Right. <laughs> I just can't do it. Right. Um, um, but my grandmother, you know, was raised and, per and perpetuates a cycle of, I will take whatever you give me and I will just, um, be okay with it. Mm. And I just don't understand that, but that is the legacy of women in my family because there's been very little control. And that's also because, I mean, part of that is because, you know, we live in a patriarch. So women in my family have always had been left holding the bag. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, um, but she was hysterical crying on the phone about my book and, Granted, she cannot read. Um, she can't even speak Mandarin mm -hmm. because that's learning Mandarin and learning to read and write. She never went to school. Mm -hmm. So she's hearing this from her family, from like her immediate family. She doesn't know that like, she's like there, I think it must've been the New York Times piece that came out. Um, it was an, uh, a New York Times editor's choice. And so she was like, it. the book was in the newspaper and everyone knows about it. And she was just, hysterical mm. hysterical because I had put her in just this awful position to defend me because she's the only person in my family that was at this point still defending me mm -hmm. and she had harbored hope of me reconciling with my mother which I think was an illusion anyways but she, <laughs> but like now suddenly yeah. <laughs> it was no longer an illusion for her. and she you know um you know, she was, but then she was also saying such terrible things to me. She was like, um, I am so glad your grandfather is dead. So he did not have to live through this shame. Um, and you have, you know, I know you're not embarrassed, but you should be because anything bad about your family reflects poorly on you. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, really awful stuff that was painful. And then my, this is also a part of my family. There's um, a lot of it's not suicidal ideation. It's almost suicidal threats. Right. Because it's always like my grandmother, it's just like whenever she gets really upset, she's like, I don't know why I'm alive. Like I should have died years ago. This is what happens when you live too long. And oh, like man. you have a burden on your family. It's just like very like, oh, this is very dark. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so how it was, I mean, as memoirists, we have that difficult decision about publishing about our families while they're still alive. Was that a hard decision or was that something you wanted to do? My mother is very young. Um, she's only 18 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And I would not be surprised if she outlived me. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> so I don't um that wouldn't work <laughs> that wouldn't work and to be honest like I have always made myself small so that my mother can have most of the space mm -hmm. that is the role that I was taught to have and um I refuse to be small in any way and um and that was 
part of why I felt like this book needed to come out. And I don't think she, she doesn't read English in general and she'll say I can't, but I think she could if she wanted to. Um, but I don't think she'll ever read it. And even if she read it, there is no way that she could be objective about it, right? So she would not see any of the, the, the work that I did to make her character empathetic and to give her character shape. Um, so, you know, I don't think that there's, you know, the conversation is basically that if I write a book about my family and air dirty laundry, that in itself is, is betrayal. And there's, you know, no, no coming back from that. There's no explaining, there's no excuses. And that's just the way it is. So, yeah, I mean, totally cultural and you're kind of still living between these two worlds. Mm -hmm. And the only way I've learned how to survive is by really um, not being in it all the time. Mm -hmm. So my mental health, like, you know, if I talk to my grandmother too long, she'll, she'll, after a while, she'll make me feel crazy. Like mm. I am the one that's wrong. Like she begins to, the narrative that is, is so strong that um, I'm afraid of being pulled back in all the time. Mm. Since it's, you know, so heavily influenced by culture, do you think there's a right or wrong or is it just too perspectives <laughs> I think right, yeah I, I think right or wrong is an American perspective okay so if we think about some of the constructs of let's say even writing right I um this is a really great book that I love um it's called um this came out this year crafting in real world yeah and it really talks about like how um writing is cultural too storytelling is cultural mm. and certain so certain things like that we hold Americans hold dear is the idea of right and wrong, mm -hmm. right? Um, black and white. And we're always compared, there's always binaries. And um, I don't know, we love our binaries. And I would say, which is strange, Chi Chinese culture is less binary. It is not about right and wrong so much as more of, you know, what do we have to do to survive? And where do we draw that line in the sand for each of us? Um, and it's less about binaries and more about duty and filial piety. Um, it's less about, um, you know, I think we're also, because maybe it's because we're a capitalistic society, but we're all about, um, you know, goals and solutions too. Mm -hmm. We're very, we're very goal oriented. Um, and um, and that's something else, again, that's a little bit more fluid mm -hmm. in, in cultures. Um, even the idea of like, I teach on the idea of balance, mm -hmm. the way culturally we think of balance. So you look up the word balance, um, it's it, originally in Latin, it, it's the, it, it comes from Libra, which is the, the scale that you think of, the sign. Mm -hmm. um, and the scale itself is like weighing one thing against another. Mm -hmm. 
But if you look at the word balance in Eastern culture, um, the Chinese word for it is ping. And, um, and I don't know if you know this, but um, old Korea and Japanese come from Chinese. Like that Chinese used to be the language for all of mm, that area. Okay. And so that's why like the East, the, the word ping is, um, is something that like is rooted back to China. Um, and that it, it's more about um, the overall um, balance of things, right? It's more about contentment and peace and calm mm-hmm. and the whole picture and less about weighing. It's more like a groundedness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when I teach writing and I teach about like, instead of, you know, us, like these characters against each other, can you build an entire world, right? Like it, it isn't just these characters. What about the surrounding? What about society? What about the family? Mm. Because it's a lot more complex than what he, what he said versus what she said. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're all playing in <clears throat> I I wanted to touch on the empathetic, you know, making characters empathetic in my in my MFA and writing about my mother. That was driven home so hard. You have to make them empathetic. If this is the empathetic version of your mother, this is the empathetic version of my mother. I. Yes. That blows my mind because you know I'm reading and I'm thinking this is different because she doesn't feel that empathetic to me. And I like that because this was the reality, but now you're Mm -hmm. telling me like you did a lot of work to make her empathetic. I can't imagine. Yeah. I dug, I dug really hard for happy moments with her. I dug really hard for her history. I did a ton of research. Um, you know, I built in a lot of history around, um, when around um, like I did a ton of research on what was happening in China at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, also like a, a little bit of research on sweatshop labor in New York during that time and how, you know, um, how industries bloomed for Chinese immigrants. Cause there was a lot of discrimination then there's not a lot of opportunity. Right. Um, so it's really interesting. And so I wanted to also add, the obstacles that were in front of her that made her choices more understandable. Maybe it's, I don't think of her, you know, her sense of conviction is strong, Mm -hmm. right? She is not sorry for anything she does. And that is who she is. Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely in there. Mm -hmm. But I think what I tried to do was give the sense of why she felt compelled to make the decision she made right. because um, to her, it was very real. Right. I could, there were moments where I could understand. Yeah. For example, you know, it, culturally with the new husband and the new kids that it some it, somehow having this child from a previous marriage would be shameful Mm-hmm. on her but I never yeah. felt and this is probably a lot more me than anything to do with your writing but I never felt empathetic towards her like I could mm-hmm. understand but I couldn't I couldn't justify her treatment mm-hmm. of you in any 
Yeah. Like yeah. there, there really seemed like no fucking maternal connection at all. And how can that be, you know, if you're yeah. a human being, like how yeah. it's heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff also because I don't think my mother, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm telling it. I'm not, I don't think she's told me many times if she had a choice, she would never have had kids. Mm. Right. And, but the only path she has had was through marriage and like her vagina was her only right. Right. Um, Like that was what she had to work with and she worked it. And that's also another cultural thing that's really fascinating because there's almost this shame in our culture of, um, of, um, you know, social climbing or in in the worst case scenario, the idea of a a gold digger, Mm -hmm. but in Chinese culture, you know, when women do that, it is not at all that way. It's seen as ambition because it's one of the only paths. That's so interesting. Yeah. Which is like, oh, interesting how there's like no shame at all around this. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting how she started as a, one of the sewers in the sweatshop mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, that, that was interesting to, to, take in from an American perspective and then think, huh. Well, I thought it was really interesting that she would say at one point she was like, um, I caught your dad's eye or your, my stepfather's eye because she was the fastest sewer. Mm-hmm. Um, she, <laughs> I just thought that was such a funny thing to boast about. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, and I didn't, I didn't know if I should take her seriously mm-hmm. or not. Right. Because you're like, wait, you know, that is kind of real. Um, but also I think he thought you were pretty like, right. Right. <laughs> so like, it was really, uh, yeah. So, and I think both those things are probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, um, for the American culture, because there's shame around it, it, it's uncomfortable. That's a place that makes us uncomfortable. Right. Well, um, not for my mother, not for, you know, and these were the conversations you would be having with all of the women around her, all of her sisters, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just throughout my childhood, I heard a lot of it. Now your stepdad is from Taiwan. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So because <clears throat> through the book, I'm thinking, how can, you know, these kids and the stepfather be, so complicit <laughs> mm-hmm. in yeah. this um but yeah. i mean that's survival I, too right you know it is yeah it is it's also like you know watching a frog boil in water right like i don't think anyone intended for my childhood to be the way it was i still think um at one point I talk about intention and how like my mother's intention at some point must have been good to bring me to America, to give me the education I um, that would help me um, live a better life that um, and and then what happened? I, I don't know, but it's, you know, I don't think sh- it's, you know, having a child show up at your doorstep and realizing that, um, they weren't going to take the way you were going to treat them. Right. And also it's kind of like this conflicted sense of duty 
yeah. and loyalty, you know, who, yeah. in order to be loyal to my current husband, I have to disown my former, you know, my daughter from, a, yeah. and I'm sure, yeah. you know, especially how you talk about loyalty and, and duty as kind of the foundation of Chinese culture. I bet that was mm-hmm. conflicting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm really glad your story is out there. And I also hope it's not just a timely piece. Um, but I'm really, I, I thank you for talking to me about it. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot from you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. 